A warm welcome to new listeners and old friends. This is the latest episode of Talking Golf. So I think you just have to be very, very careful in terms of just remember that as a coach, your impact is never neutral. Yeah. You're either helping them, you know, it's, it's adding a positive yeah. element to kind of what they're doing or it's taking away from what they're yeah. doing, right? And if performance is important and in their world it is, then anything that detracts from performance, I think, is, has to be looked at. I'd like to welcome you all to the latest episode of Talking Golf. Uh, I'm very fortunate this evening to be joined by a dear friend of mine, someone who's been a mentor of mine, maybe not one of the most familiar names in golf, but coach to 2018 Masters champion Patrick Reed. Uh, I'd like to introduce you, Kevin Kirk. Well, thank you so much. It's, I'm delighted to be here with you, Hugh. It's, uh, I know we've been talking about doing this for a while, so here we are. Yeah, we are, finally. We've managed to find ourselves in the corner of a restaurant in Carnoustie State, the Open Championship. That's correct. So. so why don't you start by just talking a little bit about how you got started with Patrick, what your relationship with Patrick is, how you've gone from, I know you've coached him for a very long time, and you've taken him from a, just a talented youngster to being Masters champion. Yeah, I mean, Patrick's kind of wandering into my life has been one of the great gifts for me, obviously. I yeah. mean, I, people like Patrick are very rare. He's got some talents and some, some things about his personality that I deeply admire and I've learned a lot from. He's made yeah. me a much better coach because to keep up with him, I've got to be trying to keep up with him or a step or two ahead, and he's yeah. hard to keep up with. I mean, he's a, he's a very smart kid, very talented, and so he's, he's really you know, forced me to kind of reach and stretch my, yeah. my coaching capacities. He, he wanted in my office in December 2011, and uh, I got a call from his agent that said he was on his way to Houston. I had met him briefly at the Masters that year with Jonathan Vegas. I was there yeah. with him, and just had shook his hand and met him, and uh, I knew he was a very good player. Uh, so I got a call from his agent, said he was headed to Houston, that he was going to be moving there, that he was looking for a place to practice, and he might need a coach. He said, do you mind if I give him your number? I said, have him call me when he gets there. So he called me. We sat down. We had about a two-and-a-half-hour conversation about him and his past. He told me his golf story and what he was trying to do. And I said, well, let's get started. So we got started that December, practiced for about, uh, he was pretty clear on some things he wanted to try to get better at. We took a look at that, but we also took a look at the rest of his golf landscape and Try to come up with a plan that made sense. Yeah. And it, um, we started in on it probably around late December 2011. 2012, I guess it had been probably around the 1st of April. He says, hey, coach, what do you think about me going over to try to qualify for the Texas Open? I said, I think it's a good idea. So he hopped in his car and went over there. And he shoots 65 and gets in the tournament. Makes the cut. Drives the weekend. That Sunday night, hops in the car and drives from San Antonio, Texas to New Orleans, Louisiana, which is a nine-hour drive. Gets out Mondays again, has not slept. Tees it up, shoots 65 again and gets in. And I, I realized that I would kind of jumped into a kid that could really do it, you know? Yeah. You know, we were talking at dinner just a few minutes ago about, about there's a lot of kids that look like they have all the right markers yep. to be really good players. And for whatever reason, they're just missing a one component that keeps them from being great. But I, I pretty quickly realized that Pat, Patrick had a lot of the right stuff, you know, yeah. the, the stuff that really separates Good from great. He went on to qualify six of eight Mondays that year, which is on the PGA Tour. Very good. difficult, yeah. just unbelievable. He won the first stage of tour school, second stage of tour school, and got his card in the finals, first try. So, and he turned professional beginning of 2011. Twelve was yeah, well, eleven. He had gone to the tour school at eleven. Yeah, and um, had had some through his college and amateur kind of world ranking stuff. He had had some access to some European events. Yeah played Dunhill here, I yep. think at one point in time, and uh, was kind of 
a little hung up between do I go to Europe, do I stay here in the States? And anyway, he takes off in 2012. He battles some, some equipment issues the first part of the year, gets all that settled out, and then uh, wins the last event of his rookie season. The rest is you know, pretty much history. He's, he's moved from 680th in the world up to as high as eighth in the world, so he's been, it's been a lot of fun to watch all that. Yeah, I mean, that's a hell of a ringside seat. For, yeah. And the fact that it's, you've been with this kid effectively from the beginning. He's come to you as a talented amateur, effectively, and now he's become number eight player in the world. Yeah, so, I mean, he's, yeah, to get the ringside seat to something yeah. like that is a, it doesn't happen all the time. I mean, those kids are rare. They don't fall out of trees. And so for me to be able to have access and, and to be able to kind of spend time and, you know, steer and help help him get on that process has been great fun for me. And it's maybe a little ideological of me, but for me, a true coaching journey is when you take someone from beginning to end, if you like. You take them from just a rough, ready talent and help them fulfill that talent. That, to me, is a true coaching. Yeah, I mean, I, I would probably view myself as a developmental coach. I mean, a lot of my background's in, in developmental coaching. Yep. And so, you know, when Patrick came, it wasn't like we were trying to fix anything. We were just simply trying to make him the best him who we could possibly make him over time. And, you know, we just keep repeating the same cycle, you know. We just, you know, we assessed where he was. We went to work on some projects. We worked at it, and we reassessed, and we did. We just kept in that same loop, just trying to roll that rock down the road. And we've just, you know, we've been doing it this, our, I guess, our seventh year now. And you're still doing the same? Still the same thing. I mean, the, yeah. the process hasn't changed. We just stay in that, that little small loop of doing the same thing over and over. And, and if it's when it's done well, I mean, the players should get better. I mean, if you're continually to move forward and staying in that cycle, you know, they're going to get better at certain things. They'll be ready to take on the next set of projects yeah. when the, during the next cycle. But you can't do it all at once. I think that's the, that's the one thing, right? And it's, it's interesting. For me, the great challenge of coaching at this level is that you're faced with the need to perform on a week-to-week basis, which, let's face it, unless you're one of the fortunate few, is a necessity for everyone. They need to do that to keep their card to earn a living the next year. But at the same time, you need to be able to develop them while they perform. Correct. And we hear a lot of, I mean, for want of a better word, we, we hear a lot of crap in the coaching world about, well, we develop over here and we perform over here. We don't have that luxury. You don't have that luxury with a player like Patrick Reed. No, I, I think the kids that play at the tour level or the world-class level, their schedules are so demanding that you have to figure out, okay, how are we going to, what are the priorities? You know, and I think that probably the biggest thing I've learned kind of being around Patrick is I've got things in my mind that I'm always trying to kind of move towards with him in my mind. But I'm also at the front of the day trying to kind of make sure that his, that he's performing well enough to meet his objectives. Right. I really think that, you know, there's so much data that floats around and so much information that kind of floats around now. I think probably the, the ability to decipher through all that and try to determine what's relevant, what's going to move the needle here. Yeah and try to make sure that those things get the most attention and then the other things get like secondary attention. Yeah. Okay. And come to an agreement with the player that, okay, these are the things that move the needle for you. Let's focus on that. Right. And then from there, if we got some other things that we want to, if we have some extra time for, or if we want to kind of have another project or two that are kind of going on behind the scenes, that can happen. But this stuff needs to be taken care of because it's important. It, It moves the needle for you. It makes you better. And no, no two players are the same, so it takes time to get in there and understand the player, understand their patterns, understand, you know, what their tendencies are, and then also, you know, the ability to determine relevance in terms of what are the things that are going to be the most important. And ultimately, when you identify those elements that move the needle, you can't commit so much to that that you end up losing the things that make you good in the first place. Yeah, so there's maintenance stuff that you do just to kind of maintain some of the things you're doing well, because you're right, I mean, 
users are going to lose it. If you start focusing exclusively on the things that you don't do well, the things you're doing well at some point in time are going to derail. So you have to be able to kind of keep those things at a high enough level while you're trying to do the other thing. So it, it takes, you have to just be able to kind of get in there and just be able to kind of be with it. It's not like you can do it from afar. It's not like you can kind of, there's no formula to it. No. Unfortunately, it would be nice if there was. Maybe my job would be a lot easier. Your job would be a lot easier, right? Well, funnily enough, I was talking to Cameron McCormick, who coaches Jordan Spieth today, and we were talking about ultimately having time to build the proper relationship with the player is possibly the most important part of any relationship. I would agree with that. I think that the position we find ourselves in with coaches is not just the X's and O's. If you look at, a, at an athlete, the developmental matrix is so wide. I mean, there may be 25 or 30 different things you're having to deal with. And part of that is their spirit and their heart and their mind and just trying to make sure that they're okay. Yeah. Because what they're doing is hard. It's very, very hard what they're taking on. Still, I mean, I'm not party to what goes on in other sports, but I can't imagine any other sport is harder than this. Yeah, and so there's a lot of failure, there's a lot of difficulty, there's a lot of pushing up against things and feeling like I failed again, I failed again, I failed again. And in those moments, those kids need support. Yeah. And so where is it going to come from? Well, some of it comes from me. Yeah, that's absolutely. part of my job. Yeah. I mean, they have other people in their life that do that, but that's also part of my responsibility. And ultimately, the again, you hear in particularly the psychology fraternity that getting this balanced human being is important and they must have these ducks in line and those ducks in line but fundamentally if you're a professional golfer who's not able to produce the shots they want they're not going to be happy that's correct the balance is of no consequence whatsoever that's right i i, I understand you know from a clinical perspective that you know trying to kind of balance that uh, that equation out it's complex there's a lot of moving parts and all the kids are different enough that you just have to take enough time to understand the kid you're dealing with but you're not dealing with normal human beings, no, and no, you're certainly right. not dealing with human beings with normal aspirations. No, I mean we're talking about, you know, a good friend of mine is in the sports psychology domain, and she told me one time. She said, "I said, well, how can these ordinary people do these extraordinary things?" She goes, "They're not ordinary. Okay? <laughs> they have one or two either personality or physical extremes that allow them to create an advantage to them, so that they're better than everybody." They're not normal. They have they have extremes in either personality, or they have extremes in physicality, or they have extreme. There's some extremes in something they're doing that allow them to be better, or else they'd be ordinary. Yeah. So that's what you're dealing with. You're dealing with somebody who has some extremes in their being. I'm a firm believer that as soon as you start to try and chip away those, what may be perceived as rough edges in normal society, you're starting to take away the very things that make them these extremely gifted human beings. That's correct. They're trying to achieve superhuman things and they have superhuman talents. Yes. So I think you just have to be very, very careful in terms of just remember that as a coach, your impact is never neutral. Yeah. You're either helping them, you know, it's, it's adding a positive yeah. element to kind of what they're doing or it's taking away from what they're yeah. doing. Right. And if performance is important and in their world it is, then anything that detracts from performance, I think is, has to be looked at. And equally, as a coach, anything you do that may get in the way of performance... That's correct. ...as fluffy and as nice as it sounds from an academic perspective, it isn't real. Yeah, well, I think it's, does it move the needle? Does it make a difference? All right. And so being around Patrick and watching him kind of move through his, his developmental you know, pathway, uh, you know, I've gotten to see somebody who did have some extremes, right? Yeah. And he's learned to kind of... Manage. He's learned enough about himself, about kind of what he's trying to do and how it's perceived in the world that he's, he's making progress. Yeah. And at the end of the day, if the nose of the curve is just up a little, that's good. And I, I firmly believe that a lot of the, the 
the achievers that I've dealt with or been around, they seem to be quite comfortable being the person they are. And I look at Patrick, who I've met a couple of times, no more than that. And while there is a sort of public image that may not be deemed as 100% positive, he is 100% comfortable being Patrick Reed. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot, you know, with him about just being the best Patrick Reed you can be, yeah. okay? Because when you're at your best, you're gonna be tough to beat, right? And I think you've proven that at every level of golf you played. Yep. So let, you don't have to be like anybody else. You don't have to go compare yourself. You don't have to go take on projects everybody else takes on. You just have to be the best you you can be. And so what does that mean? You know, how do we finish that sentence or how do we flush out that, right? And that's really kind of the biggest thing I've learned from being around him. I mean, being a developmental coach, I've historically, I mean, there's been times in my life where I've had things that are models that I thought would work or pursued. But I can tell you after being in this high performance arena for a while, that while there are those, those models, the only model is, that is really the person in front of you. You have to take time to understand what they're doing. Because you can derail or de-skill somebody real quick yeah, trying to make them quickly. be somebody else. And the journey back to Well, sometimes the level they never come at. back. Correct. It's, it's Correct. very fragile. Right? So what do you think of Patrick's most impressive attributes? Why is he as good as he is? Patrick uh, is good because he wants to be good. Really. I mean, on a really deep level. And it's more about him. He likes competing, but he likes mastering difficult things. He's not uncomfortable being uncomfortable. What do you think he loves more? The competition or being out of his comfort zone? Or being on the, the journey to mastery? I think that it's all woven together in such a kind of an intricate level with him that I don't think he could separate it. I think that he is just using golf because it's very hard yeah. as a pathway for him to do that on. I think that no matter what, if he would chose anything else, he would be at the top of the pile because he, he likes things. He's not afraid of failure. He's not afraid of being uncomfortable. He's not afraid to work at things. The competition, while the other players are important or interesting to him, it's about can I push myself to that place where I can do this when it matters? That's what he really likes to do. I want to be able to do it when it matters. And there's pretty decent evidence now that he's getting and, close to mastering and, it. And I think what you see, if you look at his record over, over all of his golf, yeah. from junior golf to college golf to amateur golf to professional golf, he continues to prove himself. His body works that would suggest that he does play good when it matters. You know? And you know, being around him and getting to kind of watch that, it's really been impactful on me. I've learned a ton just being around him while he's trying to do that. Let's change direction a little bit now. We've talked about what makes Patrick as good as he is. You've got a long track record of developing players of all levels, ages, sexes. What do you think makes you good at what you do? I think they really, going back to the comment I, I made earlier about coaches, the most important thing as a coach is to realize that you, you know, your, your impact's never neutral, right? Yeah. So when people kind of come to see me, you know, in my opinion, there's no higher calling to be of service to God and to others. That, that's it. I mean, and it's not from a religious perspective as much as it is just from, a, you know, if I can put myself in a place where I can be of service to others and I can take my experiences and my knowledge and help somebody, that's fulfilling to me. And that's what drives me. So I don't really do it. That's what gets me up in the morning. Whoever's going to kind of come in, can I help them take one step closer to where they're trying to go and be part of that journey to help them? So some days I'm good at it, some days I'm not. But, I, but that's what I wake up and try to do every day, right? Well, someone said to me recently, it's, as a coach, you're never as bad as you think you are and you're never as good as you think you are. That's, probably, there's probably some accuracy in that statement. That you're always going to be somewhere in the middle. That's right. And your coaching journey, because you've you played golf at a high level and fell into coaching relatively late. 
when you look back, do you think that coaching was genuinely your calling, that it took a while to figure it out? or? Yeah, I would say kind of looking. I mean, I, my competitive golf was, you know, it didn't end like I wanted it to end. Yeah. It was like a bad dream at the end because I had, had this vision, no B plan, by the way, you know, just <laughs> only A plan, right? And so I had this vision that I was going to be a world-class player. And so as I kind of moved down that path, I, I, I did everything in my power to try to make that happen. It didn't work out. And when it didn't, I was devastated. I was really messed me up for a while. It took about a year up to try to sort my head out and try to figure out what was next. And I got away from golf for a while to try to give myself some space to try to sort that out. There was two things that, that happened to me during that time. Number one, I, was, I woke up and realized that all that golf that I had done had been very self-absorbed. And it, that was part of what didn't feel right to me. And so I realized, okay, going forward, I don't know what my life's going to be about, but I, know, I do know it's going to be about being of service to others, not myself. I, I, I can't do that anymore. That makes me sick. It makes me ill. It's not re rewarding your spirit yeah, or your soul. It's, it's soul. also not rewarding you as a competitor. Exactly right. So when I got back into coaching, I kind of stumbled back in by accident and realized day one, I'm 29 years old, whenever I was, I, I did it, that... I had to go through all that to get here. This is where I should have been because my spirit is really about being in that supportive role to help others. I don't, I don't really like to compete that much. I'm not very competitive by nature, right? I like mastery, but I, beating somebody else doesn't mean anything to me anymore. I mean, and that was part of my struggle in golf is, I mean, I had, technically I was good. I mean, I, and I had a lot of the right markers. If somebody coming out of college would have pointed the finger at him and said, that kid can make it. He's got a lot of the right markers. But the one thing that I didn't have is just that competitive nature. To be a world-class player, you have to like to compete. And you have to have this, just this, I don't know how to describe it, this setting where you can continually fail, 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 and not see it as failure. Yeah, I'm just one step closer. There, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's no sport on earth where if you're the 10th best tennis player on the planet, you're going to win a vast majority of your matches over the course of a year. If you're the 10th plus golfer on the planet, you're going to lose 30 events a year. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, if you're, yeah, I mean what does that yeah, do to a human yeah, being? Yeah, exactly right. You know? It's crazy. And so the, the stories that people tell themselves about all that, I think, you know, it has a lot to do with whether they can, how long they can kind of stay with it. I do think in retrospect, looking back at my, my playing, I worked really hard at it and I dedicated a lot of effort because I desperately wanted to do it. And I think what really kind of derailed me, I think, in retrospect, was my expectations about what was good were so skewed that I was never going to be able to do what yeah. I had in my mind that I wanted to do. I mean, for example, a really good, two, let's say top tour players hit about 70% of the fairways, 70% of the greens. They get it up and down 70% yeah. of the time. They take about 29 putts, and, and that, makes, that puts you up in the top bracket, right? Well, I practiced so hard. I was out of that Ben Hogan era watching, you know, Faldo hit. I would hit 700 balls a day, you know, and I practiced nonstop. And I was in the gym. I was, I mean, pushing myself, right? So my expectation was that, you know something, 10% margin of error is really about all I should. <laughs> I should. <laughs> Meanwhile, you know, but I had no idea that this 70% was good enough. So my perception of what was good enough was unrealistic to the point where it broke me. Would you have been a better player if you had a Kevin Kirk coaching you? Yeah, well, I mean, knowing what I know now, of course, because I, I would have said, hey, slow down, let's define what good is, okay? Would you have listened? I think I would have. I sought out coaching, and I had the people that I, that I went to, I, was, I, I listened to what they had to say. And, and nobody's on the bus, nobody, we didn't have the data back then about what it was, right? We were following a model, as I talked about earlier, you know, that, okay, well, Ben Hogan hit, you know, a thousand balls a day, and if you're not doing that, you're, and Faldo did it, and then if, so if you're not that guy, then you're, you know, 
that's the model. That's the way. It, and it's still viewed as hard work. It and is. Good technique is the way to become. Exactly right. So, and knowing what I know now, I know that you know there's there's neural fatigue that you have to deal with, and the stacking up of all those shots over time. I mean, you can only do it for so long, right? So you have to be able to kind of say, okay, well, if I've got only a certain amount of time to train every day, let's make sure we get it right. Let's make sure we understand what good is, and although it's not perfect, good is good enough. Yeah. Don't let great get in the way of good. So if you have as one of the best developmental coaches in the game. What advice would you give to youngsters who A, love the game, B, are showing some degree of talent for the game, and C, want to pursue it? How would you, without you being their coach, you've got them for half an hour, what would you tell them? The first thing you need to do is start kind of figuring out in your area or someplace that you're in your scope of control where you have access to somebody, find somebody who who has a good track record in development, right? And there's, you'll find them in every place you look around. Yep, there's, there's, a, there's, there's some good ones, right? And go talk to them and spend some time with them and, and let them take you down that road because there's, there's so much involved and there's so much time. You know, I mean, when Jonathan Vegas won in, in Palm Springs, nobody ever heard of him because he was, he was off the grid, he was off the radar, right? Yep. At that point in time, he was a 10-year overnight success. He put 10 really hard years of work in for that moment, right? And everybody goes, where did this kid come from? It's an overnight success. Well, not really. You know, he showed up on my doorstep when he was 14 years old and 24. He, you know, hoisted a trophy. And it was 10 years of really hard work. So if you can find a, a developmental coach who is really going to be able to kind of put you at the front of the line as an athlete and it can take you down that pathway or has the resources to take you a part of the way and then get you to the next step, you got to find those people. You got to find a Sherpa. It's like trying to get up Mount Everest. Nobody's going to make up Mount Everest without a Sherpa. It does not happen. So find a good Sherpa, somebody who's an expert in development, and let them help you. How do you find those people that are expert in development, though? Because there are an awful lot of, certainly in my experience, there's an awful lot of extremely knowledgeable coaches who are technically very sound. They have a genuine grasp of the mechanics of a golf swing, but I would never trust a 15 year old with talent to go and see them. It takes a discerning eye to look at it because when you're looking at coaches, it's a lot like other things. I mean, there's, you can be distracted by what you see. I would look at their body of work over time and try to let that guide you. And then the problem is, is there's fads and there's trends in golf where all of a sudden that something will kind of come along and people will, will all of a sudden want to kind of go find out or there's some coaches that become experts in this, in a specific kind of new fad and everybody thinks that's the solution, right? But if you look at the truly good developmental coaches that have been good over time, they're developing players consistently over a long period of time. And they're developing human beings. That's correct. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, if you're looking at athlete development, you're looking at that matrix, like I said, of 27 or 30, 27, maybe 30 things, right? If at least a third of those are about the person. Yeah, you know? exactly right. That's I've retired more players than I've made because <laughs> golf is harming them. Golf is becoming harmful to them, okay? You know, I've had to take people at the end of their career who've been to that moment where they're like, you know something, I think this may be the end for you. Yeah. You know, for your well-being and for the well-being of your family and for your soul, this is okay. And it's okay to stop, but you need to... Yeah, you know, life doesn't end no, no, at okay? golf. And let, let's, let's figure out, you know, how we're going to kind of get you through that, right? Because, I mean, all these pathways have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Every and relationship, I, every and, journey. And, every, and, right. and, and, we, and we sit here and we focus on, you know, the, the two first parts. And you have to also understand that, you know, you have to be able to get people through an end point. So I would be looking at it from that perspective. From a development perspective, how important is the relationship? 
the management of the relationship between the player and the coach is really tricky. And in reality, with a young player, it's not just the player and the coach. The parents no, are involved, well, exactly the peers right. are involved. Yeah, so you've got the player, you've got the parents. Yeah. There's usually an influencer around that kid that's going to, that's going to, you have to, has to get on board, right? His peers, right? And so I think that trying to kind of manage that matrix of that around the player is really, really important. And there's a few people that have to be included in everything. They have to be read in on everything. And because if you cross the line with the influencer or the parent thinks you're going the wrong direction, it's not done. Okay. And it's as it should be. Ultimately, they're looking after the well-being of their kids. Correct. Right? They're guardians. So, but as coaches, we're guardians as well. That's correct. So, but if they know that you're coming to it with the right spirit and the right heart and that you're, that you're really concerned about the kid that's come in the room or, or the adult, it doesn't really matter. They will continue to come back because, I mean, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for support. Right? And second part of the question, is the relationship equally important out here? Yeah, I think that, you know... I struggle with, I've said many times that if I don't have a relationship or a connection or a respect with the player, it's very difficult for me to give everything. Yeah, well, I think that it's this type of work, it demands that the coach is able to do that, to be able to kind of go in there and to kind of create a, a caring relationship with the player, right? And understand that what these guys are trying to do, A, is bloody difficult. Oh, yeah. And B, you have to be able to emphasize with the emotions, the experiences that they're having. Oh, yeah. I mean, I failed enough at golf. I get it. Yeah. Okay? I mean, my golf career was great. I, I really enjoyed playing. I was a good amateur, a good college player, and, you know, played professionally for six years and, and had my share of successes and failures. But it, I had enough failure to, that I understand the path they're on well enough to be able to yeah. figure out, okay, how would I like to have been supported? I've had this discussion with a number of guys that, for me, I think our experience is slightly different from a playing perspective in that I just wasn't good enough. I'm terrible at the game of golf. But being able to fall back, have a relationship with someone so in my formative years, I think I'd have enjoyed the game much more and I think I would have understood the game much more. And when I look back now, I'm thinking, well, I don't think coaches existed in early, mid-90s who were able to offer this. But that's the only way that coaching would have impacted me. Yeah, I, I think... I'm not sure it would have been any And I was fortunate. I had, I had three or four people along my pathway that were magnificent that really cared for me deeply they were knowledgeable they could provide me with kind of the not only the golf knowledge but the life knowledge and the things that i needed to know during those different developmental times in my life right because what what i may need today in three years i may need something else absolutely absolutely so it's an evolving live it's dynamic it's fluid it's in motion it's not static and the, the whole i mean the journey of golf it does sound slightly cliched that well it's a reflection of the journey of life for me, it, it absolutely is. You're basically dealing with a number of failures, a high number of failures, and your ability to understand, manage, and respond to those perceived failures is what ultimately will help you become a success. And so it really kind of comes down to, what are the stories you tell yourself during those moments? And what's the culture you're gonna to bring to that pathway? Okay, how, if you're gonna roll, for example, when, when I got kind of involved with Patrick, it was pretty clear right up front, if you're rolling with Patrick Reed, this is the way it's gonna be, yeah. okay? And these are the four or five qualities that, that we're gonna to stick and to. And he dictated right? that culture? Just he, he, he innately brought it, I yeah. mean, and I've, I've taken that lesson and I've used it with other players. I said, okay, we need to make sure, I wanna make sure that you're prepared culturally, you know, you've got the right culture, and you've got the right stories to tell yourself when things are difficult, when it matters most, right? Because if you can get those stories in place, right? And if you can get the culture right, 
in terms of, you know, what qualities do you want to kind of bring to those moments? I want to be fearless. I want to be focused. I want to be calm. I want to be determined. I want to be decisive, right? And you start building those things into the training, all right? Then when they do come to those moments, they can do it. But to expect them to do it without, you know, taking them through some sort of definitive process to be able to kind of get those things clearly defined, it's just not going to happen. And none of that, or none of those qualities, relate to how they choose to swing a golf club. No! But in terms of how they operate when it's really important, you know, we can make an argument, well, you know, but I can tell you that it's very, very important. <laughs> it okay? is, yes. Okay. I'm not going to stand up there, and, and, but I, I can tell you, if you have the ability to tell yourself the right stories, yep. if you built the right culture in, into your, your warrior culture, so yep. to speak, right, and you can build that into your training, when you show up, it'll show up with you. So warrior culture, I mean, I think that's the way to go. And I really think that the stories we tell ourselves when it matters most is really what, what's going to allow you to be able to endure those difficult moments when they show up and they're coming, yeah. whether it's in life or golf. And so and same, if, it's all and the if, same. And from a coach's perspective, any failure to address the fact that difficult moments are inevitable is a massive failing in your yeah, life. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we were talking over dinner this evening about the U.S. Open. You know, if, if you've gone to play golf at the U.S. Open and you expect any of it to be fair, you're just going to the wrong address. I mean, golf's not fair. Take the week off. <laughs> the U.S. Open's not fair. There's nothing fair about it. So, okay, well, if it's not going to be fair, and I'm going to run up against some moments that feel they're going to be difficult, how am I going to be? Yeah, have I got the tools to deal with that? How can I? And if I can endure those moments, and I can get the right frame, and I can tell myself the right story, I can move through that moment quickly, and I can get on down the road, and it won't bleed out for months or years. Or careers. Or careers, exactly right. Careers have been doing that, right? 100%. Kevin... I think that's the perfect time to wind us up. As always, I love talking golf with you. It's always a pleasure to sit and put the world to rights. Obviously, I wish you and Patrick the best this week. And Johnny, should he get here? Yeah, <laughs> we so got some slight, we got some visa issues. Yeah, so. Obviously, I hope that everyone finishes behind the guys I coach. But that's fair enough. And <laughs> and just you know, before we kind of wrap up, you know, I I do want to let you know that I really you know appreciate your the impact that you make on and the people that you work with and the, the positive impact that you make on the game and the fact you're kind of willing to kind of pull people aside and, and do these podcasts and do things. I mean, you're, you're making a difference in the world, Hugh, and I want to let you know that I really appreciate it and appreciate you and appreciate you letting me be on your podcast. You're a great friend, Kevin. Thank All you. Right, okay. Take care. Cheers, man.